Well, good morning, Grace Life, and welcome. And those of you at home watching on our live stream, or those of you who are watching this uh, a week from today, that's strange. Some people are watching this. Some people are watching this right now, but not right now. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? You're welcome as well. It's a joy to be here today. I was at my son's, uh, he plays Pop Warner football, and I was asked to help yesterday at the game, so I got to walk out with the players where they shake hands with their opponents in the middle of the field, and you could just almost smell the testosterone in that place with these 11-year-old kids staring down their enemy in the middle of the field. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just reminiscing on my high school football days, and I'm talking to these boys, and the coach is looking at me like, let me do my job. I'm like, guys, this is it. I feel goosebumps for you. And uh, it's, it's interesting because just about every time I come up here to preach, this is, this is uh, just inside information from a pastor's heart. It has nothing to do with the truth we're going to talk about, or maybe it does. You can be the judge. Uh, this is pregame talk, I guess. Um, I feel the same feeling, seriously. This is the same feeling that I felt yesterday when I was in the middle of that football field before these 11-year-old kids went to battle with each other because I, I really do feel like preaching, preaching God's Word, heralding God's Word, proclaiming and declaring truths from the Bible, in a way there's a battle that's going on that's invisible. And we are confronting an enemy. It's not another 11-year-old kid wearing a different jersey than we are who lives down the street from us, right? Which is kind of the nature of Pop Warner. We're confronting and taking captive thoughts that aren't true, right? We're confronting and attacking unbelief and doubt and uncertainty and wrong thinking, bad theology. We're, we're confronting that. Every time we open up the Bible, God is confronting us uh, with a dynamic or, or an element of unbelief that we have that's misleading us or it's depriving us or robbing us or stealing joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of this entire chapter, Romans chapter 8, he said this is the most amazing chapter in the Bible because in it we find a promise of deliverance from everything that sin has ever done to us. That's pretty phenomenal when you think about it. I'm going to pray in just a second. This is just pregame. But, but think of this. this is, we're, we're getting near the end of chapter 8 of Romans, and there's a promise here that you, if you are in Christ, you will ultimately be delivered from everything that sin has ever done to you. And we will be delivered from everything that sin has ever done to this planet. What has sin done to you? Think of any negative, bad, untrue, damaging, hurtful, harmful deprivation that you've experienced in, the, in this life. And ultimately, you can trace it back to sin in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And Romans 8 is a promise, a promise that God's going to deliver us and rescue that, us from all of that, from all of that. It's like every bad thing, a sad thing is going to come untrue ultimately. That's the hope that we find here. So, man, pregame, psyched up, excited, nervous, because I, I want to be, uh, be somebody who heralds truth and doesn't mislead, doesn't embellish. So, with, with that mind and end, my time doesn't start yet, okay? We're going to pray, and then we'll hit the start button. So, will you, will, you, will you join me? Just bow your head and pray with me. God has a powerful word for all of us this morning. It's been a joy to just immerse myself in this text this week, and I've been so encouraged and excited to share it with you, and I'm thankful God led us last time to just stop where we were so we didn't have to tack on some of what I want to say today to the end of a, of a sermon. We can have a whole, whole Sunday to devote to it. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to be in your service, and we want to be sitting at your feet right now, Lord, not distracted, not busied with many other things, many other thoughts, 
So many things tax us, Lord, and distract us and deprive us of, of sitting at your feet, hearing your word proclaimed. And I, pr- I pray you'd protect us from that today. You would not allow the enemy of, uh, of our souls to, to take from us what you want to put deeply and plant deeply within us today, God. May your spirit come here, Lord, and, and powerfully have his way. We, we need you. We confess that. Anoint me to preach your word today, Lord. May people leave here so encouraged and filled with hope and have any doubt, any uncertainty of, of the assurance of their salvation that's been gnawed away on all week, all year, all their life maybe, to have it just eradicated today. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, well, doubt and uncertainty do gnaw away at us. It, it, it deprives us of joy. It robs us of our assurance. It steals confidence and hope, and we grow uncertain. And so I love the way Paul starts. I love the way that Paul starts this passage in verse 28. He says, we know. He doesn't say, I know. Oh, this is just for the apostle. This is for the really serious, uh, you know, VIP followers of Jesus. No, he says, we know this. He's writing to a church that would have brand new believers, just like some of you are brand new believers. And he says, hey, there's something that we ultimately know. We don't guess. We don't hope. It's not a stab in the dark. I'm not groping around trying to find this assurance. We know this. Probably this was such a staple part of, of Christian teaching 101 that Paul had already, it had already been shared at this church with the apostle that, that planted this church in Rome. And Paul says, look, I just want to remind you, you know this. We know this. And he says, all things work together. For good that those who love God. And you know, earlier in this passage, Paul says everything's falling apart, right? Planet Earth is broken. I mean, the, the, the check engine light is on for planet Earth. There's no place you can go that you won't experience brokenness in some form. I mean, we experience it in our bodies right now. Some of you that came here today, you're, you're broken in one way or the other. We all are. You know, physically, biologically, physiologically, spiritually, Mentally, there's a brokenness that takes place with all of us. Uh, and Paul says, I know everything's falling apart, but here's the hope we have. I know that God is working everything together. He is working everything together. We know this. Those of us who are believing upon, hoping in, trusting in Jesus, we know this. And, and this is kind of where I left off last week. So I'm going to do a lightning quick review. I never made it through my outline last week, which is so rare, right? That never happens. last week was God's greatest promise part two, and just saying God's greatest promise part three just sounds boring and you check out already. So I got a brand new title for the message to trick you to paying attention, okay? Today's message is called Assurance. The whole thing is devoted to assurance because I talk to so many people who have lacked assurance or who have lost assurance who maybe never had assurance to begin with. Maybe they have grown up under a teaching that taught you could lose your salvation. You know, there's, there, there are certain sins you can commit, and that's it. God's had enough. He's out. He ditches you. He's tired of you, which that's untrue. That's a lie. No part of the Bible supports that belief whatsoever. But Satan would love it if you would wrap your mind around that and, and plant that deep in your heart, right? Or maybe they grew up, and they just, they're, they're skeptic. They've disbelieved everything, and they have doubted everything, and they just live in a, in a fog of uncertainty. Um, or maybe they grew up in a church that just taught you to examine yourself, which 2 Corinthians 13.5 does teach that. 
But that's the only thing the church really ever emphasized. Every week it was examine, examine again, and examining, you'd never be, you'd never be sure, so keep asking the question, but they never helped you answer it, right? Am I a Christian? Am I in? Am I in Christ? Am I safe? They're like, keep asking, but they never really gave you the resources you need to answer that. For whatever reason, a lot of people lack assurance, and so this, this is the Scud missile. This is the nuclear warhead against doubt in this passage here. So the outline last week was, number one, God has a plan for your life. I know that sounds, you're like, oh goodness, I've heard that before somewhere. Well, listen, we see it right here. All things work together for good for those who love God, and what is that, what is that good? What is the good? Well, look at verse 28. It says right here, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to what? His purpose. So this is what God is aiming at. God has a purpose. That was point number one. God has a purpose for your life. If you're in Christ, if you love God, if you're trusting him, there is a purpose for your life that God is steering and directing your life towards. And nothing can derail it. Nothing can hijack it. It's done. He has a purpose for your life. That was point number one. Point number two, point number two is that God is actively working out his plan. He's actively working out his plan. Check this out. For those whom he foreknew, who, who did the foreknowing here? God. He also predestined. Who did the predestining here? God. To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Who did the calling? God. And those whom he called, you get the point. He also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, in grammar school, we have this idea of a subject and an object. Or you could say a subject, a verb, and a predicate. God is the acting subject in all of these verses. God has a plan for your life. We're not able or smart enough or wise enough or spiritual enough to work that plan out. We're not sovereign enough either. <laughs> He is, and he's actively working that plan out. Ultimately, there's nothing that can upend his purpose for us. And God never changes his mind. God never gets tired. There's nothing too hard for him. Nobody can stay his hand or accuse him and say, what are you doing? We are the clay, and he is the potter. And here's the third point. His plan will not fail. His plan will not fail. It is fixed. It is certain. It will be accomplished. So we got to that third point, and, and we didn't quite finish. So that's really what I want to finish today. That's where we left off. God has a plan. He's working it out. He's very good at it. <laughs> that plan is not vague. He shows us actually what that plan is. And what is that plan? To be, to be glorified. Excuse me, let me back up one. He also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. To be conformed to the image of his son. That is the plan. We are the objects. He is the subject. God doesn't change his mind. In fact, Paul is moving toward, you know, this is a three-chapter section here, really. The, the end of chapter 8 launches into God talking about this uh, in more detail because he's anticipating and dealing with objections to some of these doctrines. In the very last part of chapter 11, he says this, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. That means God's call upon our life, God's gifting to us, it's irrevocable. He never changes his mind. He never needs to because his decision the first time is perfect, right? We get fickle. We get tired. We second guess ourselves because we're imperfect. We're flawed. We're fallen. God's none of those things. 
So the the same attributes that are true of us are not true of God, and that's good news for us. That's good news because nobody else can make a declaration of assurance like this. It's so solid, it's so secure, it's so filled with hope. In fact, another place in the Bible kind of says it like this, sums it up a little bit differently than Romans does. Different words, but the same idea. Paul says, writing to the church at Philippi, he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Don't you love the way Paul talks? Paul says, and I'm not really sure about this for you guys. As I look at the Philippian church and I see division, and there was division there, he sees strife, he sees disagreement, he sees conflict. He's like, well, jury's out on you. That's not what he says. What does he say? I am sure of this. I love that. I love that apostolic certainty. That's intended for us as well. Paul says, when I look at you as the bride of Christ, I'm sure of this one thing. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So I know that we're all visual learners. I know you're a visual learner. And this passage has been called by some theologians the golden chain of redemption because Paul takes us through five different links of God's plan for us. He foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us, and ultimately he will glorify us. This has been called the golden chain of redemption. So um, if you're into chains, I wanted to show you some pictures of chains here. I like big chains. <laughs> Do you? I don't know. There's something, something formidable about that. It's just that is a chain that, that is used to hold this anchor for uh, an aircraft carrier. For those of you that were in the military and the Navy, you could probably wax eloquent on all this. I don't know much about it other than that is an anchor uh, that's one of two on that boat, and they're 30 tons each. They're 30 tons each, and whenever that thing's out to sea and they need to anchor and stable the boat so that the aircraft can land and take off, they have to attach that anchor to a chain and drop it to the bottom of the sea, and that chain better be able to hold it, right? And so the chains that they use for this are called anchor chains, and the steel that's forged there is four inches thick, and those things weigh almost 400 pounds per link. Isn't that amazing? Here's a a guide that's a Diet Coke there, if you want to see. These things are like 31 inches tall, uh, almost 400 pounds each, four inches thick. There's another scale just to show you in perspective there. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So if, if this uh, holds an anchor and it's attached to the boat, what if I were to tell you this? What if in some mysterious way God could chain you to your salvation with chains like that? Would, it, would you feel secure if God used a chain like that to anchor you to salvation, would it feel secure? I would submit to you because of what this passage tells us, that would be a very weak comparison. And here's why. Because that anchor in Hebrews 6 talks about the anchor of hope that we have in Christ. So if, if the anchor of hope that, that we're chained to is, is a boat, that boat's going to sink, right? But God is not going to sink. And that's why this is, so, this is so important. All these links are. In fact, maybe, maybe this is better. And, I know, and I, know, I know this has connotations like you're being controlled, and that's not what I'm after here. You know, toddler, <laughs> I'm sorry, toddler leashes came out a long time ago, man, and it was like the whole buzz of the, of the young mommy community, right? Why? Because nobody wants to lose their kid in the mall or at Disney World or wherever they go, whatever theme park they go to in Florida, right? And so if you want to use that visual, like you are chained to God. He's not going to lose you. He's not going to forfeit you. 
You're not going to escape his, his, his loving, watchful care uh, because of these things that, that have happened that span all of redemptive history. That's what this is really about, okay, if that helps. Um, this is the golden chain of redemption, and it really banishes all doubt. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't change his mind. Jesus loses no one. Jesus fails no one. God is not playing games. He has this plan. He's working out this plan, and it's perfect. So, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about each link. There's five of them here, and I just want to give you, as a preliminary, I know that some of the words that are used here, especially foreknowledge, predestination is used a couple of times. I know that, that those words can tend to trouble people, depending on really what background and tradition, maybe what denomination or theological upbringing you had, or maybe what you've read on the internet, or what you've heard from other teachers who don't appreciate this word. Um, I know that, that, that this can actually introduce anxiety into people, and fear into some people, and maybe even complacency, and being aloof and apathetic to God's will for your life. And as I thought about this, if somebody told Paul, like, hey, do you know that section that you wrote in that letter to the Romans? And he's like, which one? And they're like, were you talking about God's eternal purpose and plan for us? And we were called. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they said, do you know that people have actually weaponized that? He goes, what? Like, yeah, yeah, people have used that to divide the church and to, to beat people over the heads with it. And they've used it to argue. They've systematized it. And, and used it as, as like a, an intellectual bat to beat, pe beat people up with. And it's made people anxious. It's made people doubt their salvation. Paul would do a face plan. He would say, what in the world? That's not what I intended at all. That's not what the Holy Spirit intended at all. These words are powerful words. These are beautiful words. These are precious words that God gave to us through the Apostle Paul to ban and, and banish every anxious thought and doubt in our hearts. So I hope at least this is just the beginning of it, just one message. If you've, ever, if you've never heard any preacher talk about this before, I pray that you're left with the same thing Paul leaves us with. And, and let me do that now, because you know what tends to happen sometimes. We don't get as far as I'd like to. If you were to just ask the question, what did the Apostle Paul have in mind for introducing these things? Or what did God have in mind? What's the takeaway here? This is the very next verse, the very last verse that, that uh, Craig read there. What then shall we say to these things? Now hit the pause button. Say to what things? Well, all the things that we just heard about. He foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us and glorified us. What shall we say to these things? What's the takeaway? If God is for us, who can be against us? Don't you love, like, Paul, the Apostle Paul is such an, an, an able teacher. He's such a powerful teacher that he, he is anticipating with a rhetorical question, what the takeaway should be. I do a terrible job when I try and lead a community group. That's why I don't lead it. That's why Mike leads our group, and when he can't, Matt leads our group or Kyle leads our group. And here's why, because I always ask questions to get people talking, and I don't like uncomfortable silences. That's why I don't really have many when I preach. See, that was uncomfortable for me. <laughs> the preaching lab instructor at seminary said, Clayton, you're killing me. Can you take a breath? <laughs> Because, because I don't like, like, if I were to say, hey, what shall we say to these things? I would give you like half a second to answer, and if you didn't, I would answer for you. And I feel some comfort with the Apostle Paul because I feel like he does that here. He says, predestination, election, God chose us, God foreknew us, he justified us, he called us in time. What shall we say to these things? I'll tell you what we shall say to these things. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the takeaway. So when you're talking about these things, if somebody who is talking about them, teaching you, writing about them on the internet, or some celebrity pastor has a YouTube channel about these things, and that's not what they're after, I'm going to give you permission as your pastor to just hit, what's the, what button? Delete, cancel, pause, rewind, choose somebody else, okay? Because this is what God wants the takeaway to be for you, okay? If you're a Christian, he doesn't want you to be afraid when you read these things. Now, maybe if you're an unbeliever, this could unsettle your heart, and that would be a good thing, because that's what God does, amen? His Spirit convicts us and unsettles us and troubles us and arrests us and alarms us so that we can look for the hope that's in Christ. But the takeaway is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And I love that, man. I've been thinking about that all week. Just the way that Paul says it. If God is for you, not just, hey, God has you. He could say that and it would be true and that would comfort me. But this is deeper, this is better, this is more powerful. God's for you. <laughs> Don't you love that? There's, there are some people... And, and it's, it, it saddens me to say this. It grieves me to say this. There are some people who may go through their entire life without another human being, even a parent, ever actually being for them, being their advocate, cheering them on. And that's not, that's not even the right word. It sounds cheesy and trivializes and cheapens it. Being like ultimately for you, for your good, for your best. There are some people who never know that in another human being in this life. And God is offering that to you in Christ. You can be swept up into his eternal purpose. Because we all have a purpose for ourselves, and sometimes it stinks. It's terrible, right? Or sometimes we have a grand purpose, but we're not sovereign. We're not able to accomplish it, and so it gets, it gets tanked, or it, you know, it goes south. God has a purpose for us, and it leads. Here's the takeaway when we understand that purpose. He is ultimately for us. I would say it this way. God is more for you than you are for yourself. And I would imagine most of us are for ourselves, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, I don't, just a little secret, I'm for me. <laughs> that sounds so unchristian, doesn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. But it does say as yourself, right? <laughs> We're for us, but God is more for us than we are. That's good news. That's the best news in the world. So, uh, the message version of this, verse 31 says this. So, what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? I like that. Eugene Peterson, I think, captured it. So, what shall we say to these things? Should we say, meh, boring, or I don't like that word. That's what's really sad. When we say, you know what, predestination, I don't like that. That kind of troubles me and unsettles me. I don't like to think of God doing stuff like that. Well, then you, you lose out on some comfort and on some assurance. Because sometimes God says things that, that may initially trouble us or we don't quite understand. So, we're going to talk about that today. So, uh, first I want to look at the word for. First I want to look at the word for. We know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for. There's the word for. Now, if you're a person that writes in your Bible, you can underline that or circle that. Because so often what we do, and I've done this. I may have even done this from this pulpit. As I studied this this week, it convicted me. And I thought, man, I hope I've, I've never done that. Sometimes we think of that word good. All things work together for good. Sometimes we so cheapen and trivialize that. We think, you know what, man, I was driving around trying to find a parking spot uh, at Chick-fil-A. 
And all of them were taken. It was like the mobile order with the numbers. And you can't park there. They'll come out and get you. But I was driving around, and man, at the last minute, somebody backed out. And like, man, isn't that amazing? All things work together for good. Ta-da! Wonderful. And we, we attach this verse to it. And you know what? I'm not, I'm not saying that God's not in charge of that. He is. That's, that's another doctrine that we call God's providence. He governs and orchestrates everything that goes on in the universe, right? But that's not really what this is talking about. Because the good that God is talking about here, his eternal purpose, his plan, is something that can never be taken away from you. So l- let me put it that way. It's, if you're filling in the blank for good as something that can be taken away from you, then you're misusing this passage. Because a parking lot can be taken away from you, right? If you're like, you know what, man, I, I, I thought my health was, uh, I had this test done and they said they saw this thing and it turns out, man, that they were reading somebody else's test. All things work together for good. So, well, that's just the sheer grace of God that you didn't have maybe what you thought you, were, you had, right? Uh, but can your health be taken away from you? What if the next time you go in, you do have it and it's worse than they ever thought it would be? I'm just trying to be pastoral here. I'm trying to be pastoral. Let's not cheapen and trivialize what the Apostle Paul's saying here. What he's talking about is something that can never be taken away from you. This is not a circumstantial thing. This is like the eternal, redemptive plan of God for your life. That's the four. And it is to ultimately be conformed to the image of Christ. God is working that plan out in your life right now powerfully, and he will complete it. It will happen. That's the promise here. That's the good news. That's what he's working on. And whenever he says, conform to the image of Christ, uh, unfortunately, conform is, uh, in our English, we think of the word form, and we think of just exterior, like form versus substance, right? Uh, it's really a poor translation of the word. The word is actually morphe. And what do you think of when I say morphe? Metamorphosis, right? And that means like complete inner transformation, So what God is after, what his eternal plan is, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. That means he is making us into the image of Jesus. We are going to be more and more closely resembling Jesus until ultimately one day we see him as he is and we become like him. We don't become gods. We we become uh, more fully into the image of Christ as we're glorified. He is transforming our inner essence, our character, our attributes. Our attitudes, that's what this verse is talking about. That's the good thing that he promises here. John Newton sums up verse 28 like this. That means everything that is necessary, he sends. And nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Sometimes we just get our definition of good messed up. Psalm 119 says, It is good that I've been afflicted so that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 84 verse 11 says, No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Every good thing that comes into our life uh, and every bad thing that comes into our life, God is ultimately using them and working them together to conform us into the image of Jesus, not just so that we get a good parking spot. Does that make sense? That's the good that he is after. So if these are chains, these are chain links, let's look at these one at a time, okay? And and, uh, here's the verse that we'll use it to launch from. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what in the world do these terms mean? What do they mean? 
So you're going to have to put on your Bible study hat for a minute. This may seem less like a sermon and more like a Bible study for just a few minutes, but these words are all important. Paul has chosen each one of them. And listen, the reason that I want, to, want you to think of this as a chain is because each one of these links depend on the other. This, this is a method that apostles in the New Testament used. Paul used it earlier in chapter 5. He's going to use it again in chapter 10. Uh, whenever he says, how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall he, uh, he go unless he's sent, right? He stacks these things up, and it's all inclusive. He doesn't say some of those whom he predestined he called, no, he says all of them. Everyone that he foreknew, he predestined. Everyone that he predestined, he called. Everyone he called, he justified. Everyone he justified, he glorified. So this is, these are all links in a chain that are chained together that deal with all of your redemptive history and God's redemptive purpose for that. So let's look at the first link together. He foreknew. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What does that mean? Some people teach this, okay? And listen, by the way, Paul did not introduce these words to trouble us. He did not introduce these words to unsettle us. He didn't introduce these words so that we would argue over them. He ultimately introduced these words to us to comfort us and to encourage us. So that's what I'm aiming at. When he says, whom he foreknew, some people teach that this is God who looked through uh, time and space, through a, through a corridor or a channel of, of time and space, and he looked into the future, and he saw who would believe in him and who would not believe in him. And whoever chose to believe in him, those are the people that he selected and predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, I submit to you, that's not what this teaches. The word is used other places in the Bible. And in fact, uh, for, for a couple of reasons that doesn't fit. Number one, if that's what foreknow, foreknow means, then all of this is based on you, right? God looked through the future and he saw who would finally get it. <laughs> He saw who would be smart enough to turn from their sin. He saw who would be, you know, able to overcome the darkness and the blindness and the death that the Bible says we have spiritually and would pick him. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, but here's the other thing. The Apostle Paul, the scriptures that he had when he wrote Romans would be the Old Testament. And whenever the Old Testament uses the word foreknowledge or know, it means an intimate relationship. And let me give you probably what's the easiest example of that is found in Genesis 4. What's this say? When Adam, what? Knew his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This doesn't mean when Adam met his wife, he said, hi, I'm Adam. And she said, hi, I'm Eve. And he shook her hand and he said, howdy doody. Let's have kids. That's not what this is talking about. That word know there, it means an intimate relationship. And it's used all throughout the Old Testament. It's used in Deuteronomy when God talks to Israel. And he said, you I have known out of all the nations. He's saying, you I selected. You I, I, I planted my, my love. Uh, drew a circle around you. And had a relationship with you. Here's another place where you'll, you'll hear this word used. It's in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 in the New Testament. And God says, on that day, many will stand before Jesus and they will say, hey, we did many signs and, and, and many wonders in your name. And God says, but I will say to them, I never what? I never knew you. It's the same word, knew. What is he talking about? He doesn't say I never knew about you. God knows everybody. God knows our history. He knows our past. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows every word, every thought, every decision, good or bad we've ever made. 
God has intimate, detailed knowledge of every single human being who's ever been born or ever will be born. No, what that word is talking about is relationship. God says, I never had a relationship with you. So the word foreknow is talking about God having a relationship with people, God loving them, God foreloving them before they ever even existed. It's really astonishing and stunning when you think about it. Jeremiah, I believe chapter 31 says, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. It's the same idea. It's the same idea. So that's the first link, is that he, he foreknew. This is, this is uh, another place, Hosea 13. God says, there is no Savior besides me. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. Or Amos 3.2, you only have I known of all the families on the earth. That is stunning. God sets his love and his affection on his children before the beginning of time. Does that kind of blow your mind? Seriously. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. Before you existed, Christian, God had set his love and his affection on you. He knew you. He knew you. It's amazing. God didn't choose us in a way that a mailer chooses you. You know, many of you are starting to get mail outs for, for uh, political uh, elections coming up, right? Midterm. And how, why did you get that? Because you were, you were chosen by this mailer electronically, right? Or there was maybe an any, many, mighty, mo, I want this zip code, that zip code. That's not the way that God chooses. Ephesians 1 says, in love, he predestined us. So, this is a very personal choice. It, it means that God made the first move. He set his heart on us. This is what it says in, in 1 John. Uh, <clears throat> it says, we love because what? He first loved us. Who made the first move? God did. Did you initiate it? No, he initiated it. He gets all the glory for it. He gets all the praise for it. Second link, and this is the biggie, okay? He predestined us. <clears throat> he predestined us. Let me find it. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Verse before that. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So this says that God predestined us to the image of his son so that his son Jesus may be the firstborn among many brothers. Just to, just to talk about that for just a second, what does that mean, so that he might be the firstborn? Well, God is honoring his son. You know, they say that the ultimate form of flattery is what? Imitation, right? I, I can honor you by making a statue of you saying, you know what, Sarah Clayton is so amazing, I'm going to make a statue of her, and I'm going to put it right here, and it's going to be 50 feet tall, and it's going to be made out of bronze. You know what God did? He said, I love my son so much. I'm going to honor my son. He's going to be the firstborn among all creation, uh, among many brothers. All these brothers, this is going to be the prototypical image I'm, I'm conforming them into, and we're all like little statues. We're being conformed. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be a little Christ, right? We're followers of him. He's making little statues of his son to honor him. And we are becoming more and more closely resembling Jesus. So what does the, what does the predestined mean? Again, he doesn't introduce this word in order to confuse us or to raise all the issues that people have raised. He, he introduces this word to banish all doubt. Um, and there are some objections that come up when it comes to this word. And I'm going to save dealing with those objections. I'm going to deal with all of them. The way the Bible does. Whenever we get into chapter 9, that's when the Apostle Paul, being the wise and good teacher that he is, so skilled and inspired, 
he starts to anticipate objections and he deals with them. I'm going to wait until chapter 9. But I, but I will say this. Some of the objections that have been hurled at these doctrines is that it makes Christians proud or that it makes Christians nervous and apprehensive. Am I one of the elect? Am I chosen? Have I been predestined? Or it makes them angry? Am I, am, I just a, am I just a pawn on a chessboard? Am I just a puppet? And God's this puppet master? Is he playing games with me? Or that it makes us indifferent? It makes us complacent in evangelism? Well, if God's already chosen who's going to be saved, then what in the world am I doing preaching the gospel to people? He'll accomplish his purpose with or without me, right? A lot of those objections have been raised. But this is what, uh, this is what John Stott said. I love this. is a great quote. I hope I put it in here. Yeah, I did. He says, the doctrine of divine predestination promotes humility, not arrogance, assurance, not apprehension, responsibility, not apathy, holiness, not complacency, and mission, not privilege. So if any of those other takeaways are what you're taking away from this word, then you're not understanding it the right way. Predestination is, it's a precious word that is used of God's children, and it's meant to fill us with hope and confidence, and love, and gratitude. <clears throat> a little bit later, John Stott went on to say, this is not to claim that there are no problems, but to indicate that they are more intellectual than they are pastoral. So, predestined. What does this word mean? Actually, this is a Greek word, and check this out. Put your geek hat on for a minute. It's the word proharizo. Anybody know what, does that sound familiar to you? Haridzo. What does that word sound like that we have in English? Horizon, that's right. This word actually means to choose a horizon and to set your course for it. To choose a horizon and to set your course for it. Maybe this will help you with a visual. I grew up on a farm, and I've spent probably, I don't know, thousands of hours in a tractor seat. And when I was little, and my dad trusted me with driving a tractor on our farm, we farmed some land of my dad's employer that we lived on, and he let me... He let me uh, do lots of things. He let me disc up a field. He let me do some planting later on. And my dad's very particular. I love that about you, Dad. He's watching now from Arkansas. And he likes straight rows. I love straight rows. Whenever you're driving down the highway, do you ever look to the side when there's a field there and you can see the rows? And, I, man, I love a good straight row. I'm like, man, well done, whoever drove that tractor. My dad taught me this. If you want to have a straight row when you plant a field, do you know how you achieve that? You look at the very end of the fence. Now, usually fence rows are about a half mile long. Some are longer. Uh, rows are. And there's usually a, what they call a fence row at the end, and there's posts or there's trees. And my dad taught me when I was a young kid. He said, son, don't just look on the short term. You're going to jerk that tractor all over the place. Your rows will be up and down, over and around. He said, you've got to pick a point at the very end of the fence row. Look to the end of the horizon and pick a fixed point, and you stay right there with that steering wheel. And man, it works. It works. And you know what? I've got to be honest with you. It still works. I've got the straightest rows mowing the lawn and the land, don't I, Jackson? <laughs> but listen, so if that's a, a helpful visual, then think of this. God predestined you. What was the point on the horizon that he chose? God chose you to be conformed to the image of his son. He foreknew you. He drew a circle around you. Before time began, the Bible says from the foundation of the world. This, the reason this plan is so set and, and, and it's so fixed and it's so certain and secure and solid is because it spans all of redemptive history from eternity past to eternity future. 
And then this little blip on the map we call right now, this life, the vapor, right? So before time began, God foreknew you, and he drew a circle around you, and he, he picked a point on the horizon, which was you being conformed to the image of his son, and that's, what, that's the course he is set on. And nothing can detract him from that. That's what the word predestination actually means. You will come to resemble the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God the Father wants. That's what God the Son wants. That's what God the Holy Spirit wants. And this is not the only place that the word predestination is used in the Bible, but I don't want this to be the sermon where we chase that word all over the place. We'll do that a little bit later in chapter 9, okay? So, foreknow, predestined, and then the next link in the chain is, in verse 30, he called. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. So this is what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's pulling back the curtains and letting you see the inside. He's letting you see the blueprint, the architecture of what God the Father has done from all eternity past and how in time you came to be a part of that plan because he called you. Do you know the church, uh, again, not trying to dazzle you, but the word in Greek for, for uh, the church, the called out ones is ekklesia. Ek, it means called out. You have been called out of darkness. You've been called out of death. You've been called out of being held captive by Satan. You've been called out of the kingdom of darkness. God has called you out. And this word, it means just that. He called you. This is, this is an effectual call. If you look at the Bible, there are several different kinds of calls. There's the call of creation. You know, all of creation, Psalm 19 says, is preaching a sermon. All, uh, creation is proclaiming the glory of God, right? That's why we're all without excuse, we see the outside creation, we see the inside creation, the way that our minds work and reason. So even if you're blind, there's a type of call that goes on in your heart, Romans 1 says, that we're without excuse. We know that God is there, we know that he exists, he's telling us how beautiful he is, how powerful he is. He's calling to us, that's the general call of creation. Then there's the more specific call of the gospel. Everyone has heard the call of creation, right? Not everyone has heard the call of the gospel. In fact, there are some people who live in very remote places that evangelicals and missionaries are still trying to get there. That 1040 window, they call it, the red zones, where people have no gospel testimony, they have no gospel witness, there's no church, there's no missionary, there's no evangelist. So not everybody has heard the call of the gospel, but some people have. Some people have heard the call of the gospel and they've rejected it. They said that's nonsense, that's silly. I don't believe that, I think that's dumb. I think it's a lie. I don't believe it. So there's the general call of creation that everybody's heard. There's the more specific call of the gospel that some people have heard. Some of those people have rejected it. And then there's this call that the Apostle Paul is talking about. And it comes with the call of the gospel. And it's this, it's this compelling awakening that God calls you to himself. I have a couple of kids when I say, dinner's ready. <laughs> it's it's uh, compelling. <laughs> It's, it's effectual, you could say. I have no doubt, especially if I say, dinner's ready, and it's pepperoni pizza, hot out of the oven. You know, I can wait two, three seconds, and I hear, sometimes I hear fighting and shoving. I'll get three pieces. I'll get four pieces. This is a, an inner, compelling compulsion of a call that people don't resist. It's broken down their barriers. Their heart is totally open to God. It's awakening them. It arrests them. Their eyes are open. And some people say, I don't know, I don't like the way you're explaining that. Well, let me submit to you this. The Apostle Paul is writing this. 
Have you considered the author of this epistle? It's really amazing, his testimony. If you read it in Acts chapter, chapters 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul is minding his own business, killing Christians, right? Do you remember? I mean, think about it. This is really amazing when you think about it. He wasn't the Apostle Paul then. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee. He hated Jesus. He hated Christians. He hated the church. He was a persecutor. In fact, <laughs> when the call, this call, this effectual call came to the Apostle Paul, do you know what he was in the middle of doing? He was on his way en route, or en route. How do you say it here in Florida? En route? Whatever. He was on his way to murder Christians with a letter of authenticity and authority from the chief priest. He was on his way to drag Christians out of their house and, and, and bear witness as they were killed or imprisoned or worse, right? He was on his way to do that. And you know, when, Paul, when Paul's telling his testimony and Luke's recording it, Paul doesn't say, you know what, I was on my way to persecute Christians, and I don't know, I just, I just begin to think, you know, maybe, maybe there's something to Jesus. Maybe I should just reconsider. And I, and I, and I came around, I changed my mind. I was, it was so, I was incredibly wise the way that I thought about it. And my mind changed. I just used an, an, analytical thought and reasoning and just the wisdom that I have. It was just so amazing. That's not what Paul said at all. You know what he says? He says, I was minding my, my own business. I was on my way to kill Christians. And out of nowhere, unprecedented, this blinding light from heaven came and literally knocked me to the ground. Off my horse. You, do you know that's a theological debate? Was Paul riding a horse? It never says. I think he was, okay? It knocked him to the ground. Plus, that's better preaching material. If you're on a horse and you get slammed. Paul says, I was minding my own business en route to persecute Christians, and out of nowhere, this blinding light knocked me to the ground, and a voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Listen, Paul wasn't on his way to becoming a Christian. He was on his way to killing Christians, right? He didn't even know who Jesus was, and he said, who are you, Lord? So the one who's writing this is, bears evidence of what he, word, what he means by that word call. This is an effectual call that you hear. You hear, the, what did Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me, right? It's amazing, man. You can get people who pretend to be shepherds and they dress up like shepherds and they have a, 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 a staff and a cane and they walked out and they go, oh, sheep, and the sheep are like, who are you? And the real shepherd can have on flip-flops and just wake up and go, <laughs> and the sheep are like, <laughs> right? It's the call of God. They hear. They know. <laughs> I'll never dance like that again up here. <laughs> this is the call of God. Hey, listen, have you, have you felt that call of God? Have you heard the call? Have you responded to the call that knocked you to the ground? That God said, it's time to get serious with who you are, who I created you to be. I'm calling you out of darkness. I'm calling you out of that kingdom. I am opening your eyes. Hey, I think the best illustration of this is in John 11, Lazarus. God went to the tomb where Lazarus had been buried three days. And he says, hey, open up the tomb. And they're like, no, 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 Lord, no. It's, he, he's dead. He's really dead. And the King James Version, it says, he stinketh. Right? And Jesus says, remove the tomb. And you remember what he says? He says, Lazarus. Lazarus, are you in there? I can't, Lazarus, please, it's Jesus. Please, please come out. Come on out. Did Jesus beg Lazarus? Did he plead with Lazarus? What did he do? The divine command, right? Lazarus, come forth. 
And out he walked, out of the grave, out of the tomb. He was made alive again. He didn't argue. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, the British preacher, he said it's a good thing Jesus used his name or he would have emptied every tomb in that graveyard. Jesus called you by name when it was your time. See, all this other stuff, predestined, foreknew, that happened from, from before eternity. But this call, this breaks through time and space. And God put his circle around you and he came after you. He came after me, man. And I can tell you it was like the Apostle Paul. I wasn't on my way to, to persecute Christians, but I didn't care much for a lot of Christians. And I was minding my own business, and man, God arrested me. Literally, God arrested me. You've heard my testimony, right? And man, turned me around and opened my eyes and resurrected my dead heart and called me into his kingdom. And if you're a Christian, he did you too. I'm not saying you have to have some fan, uh, sensational testimony. Not everybody does. But your eyes were, this is everybody's, everybody's testimony that was a Christian. He called you. You were dead. He made you alive. You were blind. He opened your eyes. You were running as fast as your feet could carry you away from God. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And none have sought him. Remember Romans 3 has already dealt with a lot of this. There are none righteous. No, not one. Nobody seeks after God. But God seeks after true worshipers. That's the good news, right? God initiated this. He foreknew, he predestined, he called. And the next link in the chain is, man, so many other things I could say here, but we're, getting, we're running out of time here. The next thing is he justifies. And look, all of Romans has already talked about that. So if you want to know more about justification, just download one of the sermons. Here's what it means. It means God can't deal with you if your sins aren't forgiven because he loves sinners, right? He loves sinners so much he doesn't leave them in that, in that condition. He justifies them. He trades places with them, right? He atones for their sins. He takes their guilt. He takes their, con their condemnation. And he gives them his righteousness. Because he's holy and he's just. And sin has to be dealt with. And that's what it means to be justified. It means to be declared blameless and innocent. And not just that, okay, you're forgiven now. We'll dust you off and we'll put you right back there. Go get them, cowboy. You know, if God did that, it, it would be a never-ending loop. If we fell in the Garden of Eden and God said, I forgive you, try again. Oops, I forgive you, try again. Oops, I forgive you, try again. No, you know what God had to do? He says, forget it, I'll do it. <laughs> and he put Jesus in the garden instead of us. In, in a sense, right? He sent his son. He said, they're never going to get this right. They can't, it's impossible. They're too far gone. So what did God do? He sent Jesus, and Jesus lived the perfect life for us. Have you ever wondered why Jesus lived 33 and a half years? I mean, if it was just about forgiving us, God could have sent Jesus down on the weekend, done this cross thing, and then bam, beamed him back up, right? Why 33 years? Because we need righteousness. We don't just need to be forgiven. We need righteousness. We need the righteous life that Jesus lived on our behalf. So ultimately, he traded places with us, and we're justified. We get the Medal of Honor pinned to our chest for Jesus' perfect life, and he takes the condemnation and the guilt from our life of corruption and law-breaking, right? That's what it means to be justified. Now, next, next link in the chain is glorified. And this is so good, man. Check this out. I'll show it to you. That's not the right one. Okay. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So can I be a nerd for one more time up here? All of these verbs are in a tense that's called aorist tense. Greek is a powerful, beautiful language. And there's a way to be able to say something in Greek that there isn't in, in English. So what, what God is telling us is that all of these things 
uh, or is, are as good as done. And you, when you see glorified, you think, wait a minute, this is, this is the translators made a mistake, right? Because we're not glorified yet. I mean, I'm not glorified, are you? I'm not sinless. Are you sinless? I'm not. But Paul put that in the aorist tense in Greek, meaning it's just as certain as all the other things that were done. I mean, man, that fills me with courage and with hope and with confidence. When God looks at me, he sees his purpose for me. It's as good as fulfilled. I mean, my glorification is as solid as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a done deal. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's in the aorist tense. I love that. And what it means to be glorified is that one day you are going to be stunning and radiant. There's not going to be any more death, any more pain, any more brokenness, any more sin within you, you are going to be radiant just like Jesus. The Bible says when we see him as he is, we will become like him. Man, that's good. Everybody got quiet. Is it the predestination thing still hanging over? That's good news, guys. That's the best news in the world. If you are in Christ this very moment, you can stake your absolute life that you will be glorified. It's as good as done. It's not waiting on you to live a better life. It's, God's not waiting on you to be better, do better, try harder, pedal faster. It's a done deal because of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. So all those chains are connecting you to God's ultimate purpose in Christ. You are extraordinary and you will be radiant and glorious. C.S. Lewis said this. C.S. Lewis said this in Weight of Glory. If we could see the humblest Christian who seems to be barely clinging to Christ... As they will one day be, we would be tempted to fall down at their feet and worship them. It's amazing. That's good news. That's good news. I'm closing. This is the very last thing. I can't see if this is, says 43 or 48. We won't worry about that. <laughs> I'm closing with this. You know what that means? If God is for us, who can be against us? Have you ever considered history and the people who have been against God's people and what happened to them? If you go to the Middle East you can find a whole bunch of Israelites. Did you know that? Do you know who you can't find? Philistines, Amalekites, Jebusites. Uh, there's a bunch of others that Bill Hicks could probably help me pronounce, but I've forgotten. There's like seven groups of people that hated God's people. Uh, do, you know, do you know who you can find in the Middle East? God's people. You know who you can't find? Any of those other people groups. Why? Because they're extinct. You know why? Because they touched the apple of God's eye. Corey Ten Boom, she wrote the book, uh, Hiding Place. And her father was a Christian, but he loved the Jewish nation. He even, he even was put into a prison camp and died because he was hiding Jews in his clock shop. And whenever, whenever the Third Reich came and, and uh, Hitler's regime came, it's recorded in this book, he looked at Corey and he said, Oh, Corey, he said, I pity the poor German people for they have touched the apple of God's eye. Have you ever heard that term used before? The apple of God's eye? You know, where it, you know where it comes from? The apple of your eye? It comes from Hebrew. In the Bible, it's used several different places. It's used in Zechariah. It's used in Proverbs. And it's used in Psalm 17, where God says, where David says to God, protect me as the apple of your eye. In Hebrew, apple of your eye, it means the little man in the eye. Did you know that? The little man in the eye. And it means if you look in somebody's eye, if you get so close... You look at your reflection in somebody's eye, you can see the reflection of yourself. You look like a little man. And in Hebrew, it says the little man of the eye. You know what that means? They are beholding you. You are in their sight of vision. And it also means the pupil of the eye. It's the most vulnerable part of the eye that you protect. And God says, my chosen people are the apple of my eye. And if you mess with the apple of God's eye, 
you're going to have hell to pay. Can I say that in the pulpit? Because I mean that literally. <laughs> if you mess with the apple, and, and if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, read the book of Esther, read history, read the New Testament. God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And listen, isn't it good news, guys? If we are in Christ, we are swept up into this plan. This is a good plan. And here's the, here's the really good news. You say, well, I'm still scared. You're talking about chosen, foreknew, predestined. Well, how about this? Anybody can get in on this. Anybody can get in on this. These promises, these promises are for the people that take God at his word and come to Jesus. So if these promises are appealing to you, you want to have your sins forgiven, you want to be swept up in God's plan that sweeps all of eternity, all of eternity and redemptive history, then come to Jesus, friends. There's nothing stopping you. God is ready to forgive you. God is ready to forgive you and take your sin away and conform you into the image of his son. You will be the one that's holding out. Nobody can ever stand before God and say, you didn't choose me. God will be able to say the exact opposite to you. You rejected me. You rejected me. So have you come to Christ? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdensome, and I will give you rest for your souls. And if you already have come to Christ, be encouraged. This is the best news in the world. And we're still not done. we got one more section at the end of chapter 8, which is just the battle cry. Paul goes even deeper into the good news, and we'll get to that next time we talk about Romans, okay? Thank you guys for being patient. I wanted to finish that, okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these, these precious truths, this, this good news that you gave us. I pray that nobody is confused. I pray, Lord, that nobody has been misled, that everything I've said today is true. And it has arisen out of this passage as best I can study it and interpret it with your Holy Spirit's help. I pray this would fill us with hope, with joy, with strength, with courage, with confidence to face whatever difficulties we encounter in this life, Lord, because we know we are a part of your plan. This is the golden chain of redemption, Lord. You have linked yourself to us through the purposes that you have for us and your Son. So fill us with hope and encouragement this morning, we pray in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.